Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the distinguished honor of interviewing Dr. Carmen Ayala from the beautiful Highland Park Public Library. Dr. Carmen Ayala served as Illinois State Superintendent of Education from 2019 to 2023, leading us through the pandemic. She was the first woman and the first person of color to serve in this position. Prior to that, she served as a superintendent in Berwyn North School District, assistant superintendent in Plainfield and Aurora East Districts, and as a classroom teacher in Aurora and Chicago Public Schools. I had the fortune to meet her when she was a superintendent in Berwyn 98, when she opened her doors to me when I was pursuing my superintendent endorsement. I was able to see her live in action and knew right away she was someone to learn from. Her guidance and wisdom, especially an hour long meeting she dedicated to my learning is something I will forever be grateful for. Carmen, thank you so much for making a difference in me. Dr. Carmen Ayala, who are you? Who am I? <laughs> well, I'm retired right now. Um, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, and now I'm an educator. I've been a teacher. I've been an administrator. Um, I was blessed to have served as the top level uh, position in the state of Illinois, superintendent of schools for four years. Um, and I am a mentor and I am an equity warrior. Wow. You, you had a, a long trajectory. Can you please walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Well, I began my teaching in 1983. It was a time when education uh, wasn't a popular subject. Uh, many teachers were down. The publication, A Nation at Risk, had been published. And so it was just a lot of concern about teaching. And so kind of a little bit like it is today. And I began teaching in Chicago Public Schools. And I ran across so many teachers that were really down on education and it reflected in the classroom and I thought to, to myself oh my god I don't want to be in the profession 15 years and feel this way and not be able to do anything else so I had worked my way through college and I worked as a bookkeeper and in real estate mm -hmm. and so I decided to get my MBA but as I was going to school after teaching a full day I developed a love for education and so I did finish the MBA and I thought, oh, what am I going to do now with this MBA? I want to stay in education. And so I became an administrator. Um, I uh, was the director of bilingual services for East Aurora School District 131. At the time, it was the fourth largest bilingual program in the state. And we were a model program. And I mentored so many new directors at the time. Uh, from there, I was promoted and became assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction. Uh, I have a really strong background in curriculum alignment uh, and development. And so I uh, was there in East Aurora for about 14 years. From there, I went to District 300, 
which has Carpentersville, Algonquin, Lake in the Hills, uh, lots of different little municipalities. And I was director of school improvement there during the comprehensive school reform days. Uh, so I really, really learned a lot about what is it that, what's the recipe for reforming schools? Uh, and then I, uh, I was there for three years and I became assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction in Plainfield District 202. And there I think I really cut my teeth. Um, I did a lot of work with curriculum alignment, curriculum development, but my second responsibility area was diversity, equity, and inclusion. At the time that I started there, the district was exploding. So I helped to open nine schools in five years. So we were bringing in hundreds of new teachers every year. It was a changing community from being predominantly white to really now reflecting black and brown students. Uh, what's interesting, if you know the history of Plainfield, it was the headquarters to the KKK. So it has a very strong undercurrent um, and it was quite challenging to bring in diversity initiatives during that time. Uh, I left Plainfield to become the superintendent of Berwyn North 98, where you and I met. Uh, and I replicated some of the things I did in Plainfield in terms of closing gaps. And they worked in a large district like Plainfield. And I was able to see that it worked in a smaller elementary district, district like Berwyn 98. Uh, began working on a book that I uh, was able to finish and publish with some co-authors, uh, Restoring the Soul to Education, Equity Closes Achievement Gaps. Uh, and then from Berwyn District 98, I became the state superintendent of education in 2019. As you mentioned, the first woman, the first Latina, and to lead during a pandemic. So. Now I'm retired, resting from all that. <laughs> wow, what a, what a journey. I, yeah. I have a lot of follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. uh, what challenges do you remember facing when you began as an administrator, uh, being Latina, working in districts where um, everything was shifting and Latinas were moving in and other people were moving out? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that equity has been my passion and my life work from day one. And so I was one of those administrators that would always kind of raise their hand and say, well, what about the bilingual students? Oh, what about our low income students? What about our black students? And so I was known in one particular district as asking the million dollar question. <laughs> and I wasn't afraid to face those things because of some advice that I was given by my very first superintendent who gave me my first administrative um, opportunity. So he calls me into his office. You know, it's that first meeting that your boss has with you. And he says, Carmen, three things. I want your honesty always, your loyalty, not to me, but to this district. And the third thing is really a piece of advice. No matter what you do, no matter how hard the decision you have to make, no matter how many people are going to be really upset with you, as long as you make the decisions with the best interests of students in mind first, you will never go wrong. And that has been my North Star. Wow. Did you ever get pushback when you went to curriculum and instruction 
maybe some people thought, what, what are you doing here? You should be in, maybe in bilingual ed or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I experienced that more so uh, in one district, Plainfield 202, lots of change. The attendance boundaries had to change almost every year because we were building new schools every year. And so what was happening was when you went to the children were going to different schools almost every year. You know, some of the children were and they were getting the same instructional units because their curriculum was really more site based, teacher based. And so here I come in and the superintendent says to me, I want you to build a cohesive, vertically and horizontally aligned curriculum for this district. That's huge change. And so I did get a lot of pushback uh, from teachers, from administrators, from parents. But you stick with it. You keep bringing people along. And when they started to see the data and the improvements, little by little, you take them prisoner one by yeah. one and little by little, um, they still today are doing some of the same things that I had brought into the district. Wow. When you become a superintendent, um, like thinking now going back and your entry plan, uh, what went very well? And maybe there's one or two things that you're thinking, hmm, maybe I should have done plan B or C. What are your thoughts? So you're asking me about my first experience as a superintendent, yes. which would be Berwyn District 98. Correct. I think one of the things that I, um, I'm so grateful that I did uh, the superintendent was retiring. And so the board had appointed me, hired me March, and his last day was July. So I had a good three months to really get to know the district. And he was so amazing. And I was able to go in and he told me all the ins and outs, the little details they don't tell you when you're interviewing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes. And um, I interviewed all of the board members. I interviewed the police chief, the fire chief, the mayor. I interviewed groups of teachers. I interviewed every single staff person in the central office. And I think doing that, Number one gave me a really good picture of what things were really working well and what areas may need improvement. But it also helped build a relationship with people. And so I think that was a blessing because I'm change pain. So after I started, I started working on uh, diversity. We did an equity audit. And then we also started working on curriculum alignment because every school was doing their own thing. Um, and so that really helped. So equity audits sometimes bring a lot of pain because mm -hmm. people realize what is really happening. What advice do you have for people who, who are going to run their equity audits and uh, how to manage that pain of the community of the teachers that may realize, yikes, we're, this is happening? What, what thoughts do you have about that? Well, first of all, get a good, if you're going to do an equity audit, <clears throat> I would recommend using a consultant, right? You can't, it's like you can't be a prophet in your own land, right? And if you have a consultant, sometimes they can bring perspectives that you wouldn't be able to bring. It's right there with flashing lights, but you can't say it because you're there. 
And sometimes an outside person can help to bring those perspectives and create those conversations. Uh, but you have to find the right consultant to do the right kind of equity audit that schools in particular would need. Um, and that consultant can provide professional development, can lead conversations, can really help to establish a good foundation for then that school's journey to continue. So that's what I would, I would advise. Wow. I'm sure the listeners of the show and I are wondering, one day you receive a call and perhaps the governor saying, we want you to be the state superintendent. Can you walk us through that experience? <laughs> like, wow. I had no idea. And I had no idea that there were individuals that had submitted my name uh, to be considered. And then I was contacted, Carmen, you are being recommended. We'd like to talk to you. It felt surreal, you know, like a, like a dream. And I'm like, oh, Dios mío. You know, I let the good Lord guide me um, and interviewed. I interviewed with the governor, with the deputy governor. I know that there were a couple of other people that they were also looking at. And my thought was, if it's meant to be, it'll be. There's a reason why I had the positions that I had. Um, and maybe there is something that I could contribute to education in Illinois. And so um, it was surreal, it was surreal. But then once reality hit, it was tough. <laughs> I can't imagine. How does your life change? I mean, superintendents are so busy and now there's like 800 districts? 852. 850, all of a sudden you have all the responsibility, you have to go there, here, there. Like, how does your life change? Well, you are much more engaged and involved. Your hours and days are multiplied. Um, but, you know, the Illinois State Board of Education has an incredible staff. And so you work with individuals and people um, that support and, and, and you, you know, move forward the things that need to be done. Um, you have a lot of outside supporters, you have a lot of advocacy groups, you have the Illinois Association of School Administrators, the Illinois Association of School Boards, the Illinois Principals Association, and you develop some very good professional relationships with those leaders so that when there are initiatives or there are things that you want to really talk about and, and work through, you have people that you can bring to the table collaboratively and work through. And I think that's really important to do. Did anything call you by surprise when you saw districts that perhaps you didn't have access to before? Um, what I can say is that Illinois has 852 separate, unique, distinct, diverse districts, and they don't all walk in line, right? You have those that take detours, just like you would in a school building with, you know, your teachers in your classrooms. Um, and it's important that you know that, recognize it, and work with it because Illinois is a local control state, yeah. meaning that the individual districts have a lot of local control. I'll give you an example. Curriculum. Mm -hmm. The Illinois State Board of Education does not write curriculum, does not really necessarily recommend curriculum. That is left to the districts to decide. What we decide on are the standards 
and then the state assessments are based on the standards. But how you teach it, when you teach it, what resources you use is a local decision. And a lot of people don't uh, truly understand that. I see. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So let me ask you, like in Back to the Future, if you could go back in time of any of the positions you have held, what would the Carmen of today tell the Carmen of back then? Wow, that's a tough question, Efrain. <laughs> <laughs> back to the future. Um, wow. I think that... Probably my experience in Plainfield as assistant superintendent of curriculum and instruction, I think that I would have said to that Carmen, reach out more, reach out more. Um, Stephen Covey talks about increasing your circle of influence and to make deposits into that circle of influence so that when you need to, you can make withdrawals, right? And um, I think that the Berwyn, the uh, Plainfield experience was really tough. And I felt there was so much pressure on me with curriculum, with being the only person of color at central office. When I started, I hired some individuals that helped to diversify that. Um, but I think that I could have reached out more and developed more external kinds of relationships at that time. That's a good reflection. Yeah. Thank you. You talk about Stephen Covey. Let's talk about books. Um, if you will have to gift two books, one fiction and one nonfiction to a loved one, mm -hmm. which one would those books be? Well, my all-time favorite, favorite, favorite. I read it when I was in sixth or seventh grade, uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright, and then Native Son, which is another one of his books. And I think that my passion for equity, the seeds were planted after reading or during reading those, that, those books, um, just to read about that experience and how it resonated with my experience growing up as a child and being the first Latino family to grow up in the Logan Square area where I lived and the things that we experienced as a family and the things I experienced in school. Uh, later on to become an educator and really advocate and put my foot down when I saw certain things that were going on with the students. So Black Boy and Native Son by Richard Wright. Um, and then I would have to say The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, Stephen Covey. Um, I have referred back to that book many times. It just has so many good nuggets of relationships and working with people. Um, I think it's just a, a really good book. It's an old one, but a good one. Beautiful. Thank you. You mentioned about uh, writing a book. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your book and the experience uh, of writing it? Well, Restoring the Soul to Education, Equity Closes Achievement Gaps, is kind of written like a novel, Ooh. okay? It tells the story of Plainfield and Berwyn. So it talks about how in Plainfield there was a tornado and everybody learned about Plainfield, 45 miles southwest of Chicago, and they were rebuilding. And so homes were very affordable. And so a lot of people from the Chicagoland area started buying their new first homes in the Plainfield area. Um, so I write about what we did and how we did it and the results. 
I'll tell you a real quick story. Uh, was sitting in a board meeting. One of the board members say, says in a public meeting, I'm not in agreement with these diversity initiatives because they're being held at the expense of our white students. I had to be held down in my seat. I looked at my superintendent. He looked at me and like, don't say anything. And I didn't. I waited until my last um, presentation to the board, which was on our achievement, where I showed the bars, the bars that showed Plainfield up here and where the other districts were in their gap um, growth. And I saved the slide that had the performance of the white students on it for last. And clearly you could see white students' scores were going up just as high as Latino and black students. And I said, and when you incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion, even your white students benefit. And I looked right at that board member and I said, what can he do to me now? I'm leaving the district. <laughs> um, two days later, I did get a little somewhat of an apology email. Um, so it tells the Berwyns, uh, the Plainfield story. So then I take what we did in Plainfield and I replicate it in Berwyn. Real in, intentional um, diversity uh, audits and professional development and relationship building along with tight curriculum assessment and instruction alignment. And the same thing happened in Berwyn. Lots of battle scars, but when you got through it and the teachers began to see that we were outperforming the growth of all the neighboring districts and Berwyn had been at the bottom for so long, they got it. And so I had a conversation with the current superintendent in Berwyn and she said, Carmen, we're doing the things that you put in place and we're still doing good. We're still doing good. Um, so the book, Restoring the Soul to Education, tells the story and it talks about inclusive behaviors and it talks about the equity journey and what needs to happen. It has to be intentional, systematic and systemic. Yes. And that's the key. That, that's a great lesson. Um, um, this equity uh, thing is creating a lot of divide in our country. Uh, in Florida, uh, I know that uh, some libraries are almost empty uh, because um, uh, some think that when we exclude the history, we're better and we don't make anyone feel bad. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of my favorite quotes is, since when historical facts became a threat. How do we address that in schools today uh, when we have families that come thinking one way and other families thinking other ways? Well, I think you go back to the standards. You unpack the standards and you acknowledge that equal is not equitable. First of all, we have to define what equity means. Equity is not just about race, right? There was an inequity when all the sidewalks had curbs. When you were going to cross the street, they all had curbs, right? And if you were in a wheelchair, it was very difficult to get across the street. If you had a, a baby buggy, it was very difficult. So what did we do to make it more equitable? We shaved down the curbs and we made it like a little ramp so that people can get through, right? Back in the day, if you know the history of desks, 
All the desks were right-handed. They were all right-handed, equal, the same. But when we began to take a look at what that meant and access, we now have desks that can move around so that if you're left-handed, you're able to utilize the desk, right? There are so many examples like that. That's what equity is, leveling the playing field so that all individuals have access. And in my passion world, education, it's the standard is the bar, but not all children can equally get to that bar if you give them the same. Some children need more, some children might need less, but the bar should not be lowered. This is the bar. So equity means if I'm an English speaker, a non-English speaker, I'm going to need some more help. I may need to start out originally in my native language. I may need to have English as a second language. There are different things that I'm going to need, but I'm still at going after meeting that standard. If I'm low income, we know that for very young low income families, there's a difference of 3 million words in their vocabulary development. So having been a former kindergarten teacher, I always worked under the model, I need to litter this classroom with language and literacy. And so that, you know, what are those things that are needed so that all children can meet that standard? Wow. You mentioned you were a kindergarten teacher. Yes. I never asked, why did you become a teacher? Where that uh, vocation came from? I have to blame it on Sister Mary Agnes. Ooh, <laughs> uh, when I was uh, in Chicago, I went to church, uh, very active in church. And uh, Sister Mary Agnes recruited me to help her with the CCD classes, the classes to, uh, to prepare children for their first communion. And that's where that seed was planted. Yeah. Wow, from first community. That's, that's so amazing. I was over 14, 13, 14 years old when I started helping children learn. You knew so, already. Yes, that yes. was Fantastic. that was it. Yeah. So tell me who is or who are your biggest influences? My biggest influences, first and foremost, are my parents. Absolutely. My parents, my father, rest in peace. My mother's still with me. My father was we will do whatever we have to do, make whatever sacrifices we have to make so that you all get a college education. And every one of my siblings is college graduated. I have a sister who has two masters and I have a PhD. They, they worked hard and they had that expectation. So whatever we needed for school, we got it from them. That was a priority. Um, Secondly, I've had some incredible mentors in my life that I remember fondly and dearly. Um, my teachers when I was in elementary school, I got the opportunity when I was teaching in Chicago public schools to go back and teach at the school that I went to mm. and to teach next to one of my eighth grade teachers. So it was a really awesome experience. And before I I left um, the state superintendent position. I went back to my elementary and my high school and gave the commencement speech. And I ran across uh, one of the fathers for one of the students I had when I was a teacher there. Um, so just incredible. Um, these teachers that saw something in me and really just 
um, advocated for me, worked with my parents, and um, just really moved me along. I mentioned my first, uh, the administrator that gave me my first opportunity. Um, just, I still talk to him today. He uh, always said to me, Carmen, you're ready to be a superintendent. When are you going to get your superintendency? And I finally did. And he said, whenever you get your first superintendency, I want to be there the night the board appoints you. I'm like, oh, okay. So I got my first superintendency. And he said, when is the board meeting? I told him when. And he surprised me. He was there. Wow. So you need mentors. You need people that will guide you, will tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And will help you grow. Um, so now that's something that I want to I want to do. Beautiful. What makes a good mentor? Someone who listens, someone who shares their experiences, not so that you could be cookie cutter just like them, so that you can know, because when you are an administrator, no one situation is repeated, right? But you experience these conversations with parents, with teachers, with board members, and you take nuggets from that so that when another opportunity comes, you can link, oh, this is similar to this, and I did this, and eh, it kind of didn't work, so I'm going to do this, or I did this, and that was great, so I'm going to go ahead and try it here. And so a good mentor gives you examples, gives you advice, gives shares experiences with you. And if you ask them, well, what would you do? They would tell you what they would do, but then they would reflect it back. How would you address it and help you walk through it? Beautiful. You mentioned you gave the commencement speech in the school that you went to. Mm -hmm. What is your fondest moment and the most difficult moment that you remember? I'm sure that day was full of a roller coaster of emotions being there. Uh, I don't know if I should give a high school or an elementary um, experience. I'll do elementary when I was in fifth grade. I had the opportunity. Now, again, you can count on one hand the number of Latinos that were in the school. We were the first family. Uh, but in fifth grade, I was selected to be Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Every fifth grade year, the fifth graders put on the play, The Wizard of Oz. And I was selected to be Dorothy. I'm like, here I am, this little, you know, curly haired Latina playing Dorothy in a school that's predominantly all white. That was so cool, so cool. Um, but there were, there were painful memories. Um, I remember one time uh, we got up one Sunday morning and my parents had a, a three-flat gray stone on Sacramento. Um, and our parents weren't in, in, in our you know, apartment. And that was unusual because they're always there. But we heard talking and something going on out in the front of the house. And there were my mother and father scraping with kind of bloody knuckles, red paint that someone had come and splattered on the gray stone. So lots of experiences of just um, racism yeah. Yeah. and hurtful things. Wow. I'm sure that impacted you for, for your trajectory, things that still happen today. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of this. Uh, let me ask you, um, we all address at some point the belief 
that we are not perhaps good enough or that's only for other people that are out there, not me. And psychologists call it imposter syndrome. How do you address this? Yeah, that's that's tough. There were moments in my life where I'm like, I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm good enough for this. I don't know that I am cut out for this. As state superintendent, there were lots of times where I just like I just this is not for me. And I would tell my mother, I think I'm gonna resign. It's just this is just I can't do this. And she said, No. If God didn't want you there, he wouldn't have put you there. And when you can't hold it anymore, he's going to carry you. So you need to continue. And I think it's having people in my life that saw something and that helped me through difficult situations and encouraged me. Um, the mentors that I spoke to you about, my parents, um, it's so important. It's so important. And I think that's what helps you. Even today, um, I got a call recently that um, North Central College is wanting to honor me with an honorary degree. And I'm still pinching myself. I'm like, oh, okay, what? I'm just common. I just, I tried to do the best I could for the students and the teachers and administrators that I served. And I did my job. But um, it's, still, it's still surreal to me. People are like, no, to have put the equity journey continuum into play, to have led through the pandemic. And they start mentioning all these things. They're like, but that's what I was supposed to do. Um, but they said, no, it took a strong leader to have gotten through, got, helped us to get through all of that. So it's the realization that what you're doing is having and touching the lives of other people that are not in your nucleus yes. and what kind of an impact you can have. And sometimes forgetting that because you get so into the day to day and do this and this meeting and this phone call and this, and this you know, put out this fire and <laughs> create this fire. And, <laughs> and we forget how much of an impact we have. Um, and sometimes it takes standing up in front of a group of migrant um, people that are going to work in the migrant summer program. And you talk to them and you say, well, when I was working with the migrant program and you tell your story and, and they see you up there as, you know, the superintendent, state superintendent, it's like you're a celebrity in a way, they want to take a picture with you. They want to post it on Facebook. They want, and it hits me between the eyes. Oh my God, I am having an incredible impact. And yet when I'm doing my day to day, I don't realize it. Wow. What, how do you address uh, the critiques and the pundits, especially I can imagine when the pandemic was going on and you're trying to do so much and also adding to that, being the first woman and the first Latina, like, like, what lessons do you learn? You got to develop some thick skin. And I think that my experience in Plainfield and partly in Berwyn helped me to do that. Again, the North Star, every decision 
is for the best interests of the students. So I could lay my head on my pillow and get a good night's sleep knowing that I've done everything I could to really impact and help students as much as I could. Nobody can blame you or criticize you for that. But you learn how to not take those things personally. Because a lot of times it's not about the person, it's about the issue. And you need to know to distinguish that and know that what you're saying, what you're doing, what you're putting out there is the right thing to do. Wow. Um, the last time I saw you in person, uh, you were the keynote speaker at the Illinois Latino Administrators Association. And you gave a master class about how Latinos tend to interview and how very few we are in, in positions of administration and education. Can you retell that story? I'm sure the listeners and the viewers will absolutely love that one. Yes. Um, part of this comes from an experience that I had in Plainfield. Uh, we wanted to diversify our administration, right? A lot of places tell you, we want to find diverse leaders. We want more diversity and teachers and, and okay. So we had a high school principal position open and I reached out to my network and brought in some candidates. There was a Latino who interviewed for the position and he responded, he answered the questions. When he answered the questions, you literally saw, and it was a committee of about 15, 20 people. I was the only Latina, they were all white, right? And you literally saw their bodies slumped in the chair and they kind of go down and they put their pens on the table and they listened politely. And I'm observing this and I'm listening and, and I'm listening to his responses, which he nailed the questions. But this is how we as Latinos respond because it's cultural. We come at responses through an experiential approach. We tell a story. Well, I remember the time that I was working with a committee of people to put together a school improvement plan and la, 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 la. You tell the story. Whereas um, a non-person of color would come in and say, well, first I would do this and then and then and then and then summarize it and tie it in a bow. And that was the difference. And that was the aha moment for me. It's twofold. Our black and brown candidates who are qualified need to understand who their audience is and how to respond. And then our committee people interviewing need to understand who the candidates are and why they would respond how they respond. So that's, that's a real area of interest for me that I would really love to mentor and work on. Um, I have a pet peeve that every time we put uh, a message about the teacher shortage, we always say, well, we want more diverse teachers in our classrooms. We want more diverse administrators. We want high quality, diverse administrators. And I challenge and say, why do we have to say high quality? Are you saying that me, woman, Latina, in the highest position of education, with a master, a PhD, an author, and somehow not high quality? <coughs> Why do we have to quantify that? 
And so I am in a state now in my life, <clears throat> the position that I had where I challenged that. I don't want to hear the word high quality, diverse candidates. No, you have qualifications and you have two candidates. You have, a, let's say, a Latino and they meet the qualifications and you have somebody who is non-Latino and they meet the qualifications and they're both qualified. Who do I hire? I'm gonna hire the Latino because that's what the community needs. You know, addressing those microaggressions from interview panels mm -hmm. is definitely a topic to learn from, from people who are aspiring to be administrators. So let's talk about productivity. I mean, throughout the years, you have had positions where there has been more and more and more responsibilities. I'm sure like uh, for you, organizing has evolved throughout the, the years. What, what lessons have you learned about getting yourself organized to still and still have a productive life. Wow. Well, I, they always told me, Carmen, you're so organized. <laughs> um, I think I look at the day, the evening before, sometimes even two days before, if it's a big project or something, so that I know what's coming. And I think that's very important that you keep a schedule, that you keep tasks you know, kind of like the begin with the end in mind, another mm -hmm. Stephen Covey. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, begin with the end in mind. If by this date you have to have this, what is it going to take for me to get there? And you back map it and you start putting things in your calendar so that when you get to that date, you've got everything done. The worst thing to do is to get caught in a situation, oh my God, this is due tomorrow, and then you're like up all night long trying to get it done. And it's not, it can't. It can't be as good as if you took it um, with more time. Um, and so I think that that's really important. The other lesson as I got into positions that were at a higher level, learn how, when, and with whom to delegate. Mm -hmm. You can't do it all. You shouldn't feel like you are responsible for it all. You're responsible for the outcome, but how to get there is your responsibility, and that doesn't mean you have to do it all. So where you have in individuals that are strong in certain areas, reach out. And I have found that people have been more than willing to work with you. Know your weaknesses and find people that have that as a strength and develop collaborative partnerships for different projects so that you're not, you're not just holding it all and thinking that you have to do it all. You don't have to do it all. Wow. I mean, with all the writing that you have to do, uh, you put some music or some candles, like what is your process of sitting down and, and, and writing when you have to write either newsletters, letters to the state, the community, uh, perhaps emails that are important? I start thinking about it from the moment I get the request or the moment I know I've got to put this out. It's just this record I play in my mind as I'm driving, as I'm cooking, <laughs> as I'm taking a shower. And so by the time I sit down to write, I have an outline already in my head. And that makes it easier for me. I have a tough time getting started with writing. It's like a... I forgot what you call it, but like a writer's cramp or something. Yeah, like the, that. the writer's block. Yeah, writer's <laughs> block. Uh, getting, but once I'm started, I just keep going. 
Um, so I, knowing that about myself, thinking, just mentally thinking through, well, I could talk about this and talk about this. No, I could do this first. And I, I move it in my brain and I have an outline already in my mind. So when I sit down to write, I just start writing. I'm curious, do you... Do you think about these things in two languages or do you go to one or the other? Depends on the topic. Mm. It depends on the topic. Yeah. Which topics go in Spanish? Which topics would you say go in English? Some of my teaching, because I was a bilingual teacher. Um, and some of the stories that I tell, you know, as I was a teacher, the Spanish will come in. If I incorporate uh, my life experiences growing up, the Spanish will come out. Mm. My faith, um, the Spanish will come out. And, and sometimes I purposefully will just put in something in Spanish just to make a point that we can function in more than one language. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the faith and what role it plays in your life? Oh my God, it's at the top. It's what sustains me. It's what um, I was raised uh, in a Catholic home. My father was a deacon. Uh, my mother was a Eucharistic minister. I was a Eucharistic minister at the age of 14. Um, very active. I sang uh, Spanish church music for the mass. I had the opportunity, the blessing, to record a Christian Spanish music album uh, when I was in college, uh, kind of uh, singing with a gentleman who had wrote the music. And it's just an amazing experience. Um, so I wake up in the morning and I give thanks to God for another opportunity. And when I go to bed at night, I go to bed in prayer, giving thanks to God for everything that occurred during the day. And just, I surrender to the good Lord and I know that he's going to take care of me. And that's, that's how strong my faith is. I know that whatever happens is not a coincidence. There's a reason for everything that happens. And yes, you have choice and you have goals and you have things and you can reach those with your hard work. But sometimes how you get there are the blessings that you receive along the way. Um, what about um, with all the traveling as a superintendent? Um, I imagine you either listen to music or maybe audiobooks and all those Um, car rides. Uh, what is what is your music, or or maybe it's silence? What what is your choice? Well, it's hard to believe it, Brian, but I'm truly an introvert. Ooh. So introverts re-energize re internally through silence. For me, it's through prayer. It could be listening music. Normally, when I was traveling, and I didn't get to travel as much because of the pandemic, of course, but I was always accompanied being the first woman, the first woman of color, one of the things I had to be careful with is find out well, what community am I going into. And the thought was I would always take a colleague with me. I would never truly go alone. So there was opportunities for conversations in the car. But there were, all, there were times where I drove to Springfield by myself. And the quiet ride was refreshing because I'm on, I was on all the time, emails and phone calls and meetings. And so having a couple of hours alone in the quiet um, was what I needed. Beautiful. Yeah. And lastly, um, what Carmen Ayala does for fun after all this 
in front of the stage, the <laughs> stage closes, and it's Carmen and her life. What do you do for fun? Well, I just started singing lessons. Ooh. Something on my bucket list that I wanted to do, but I never had the time. So singing, I love to sing. I still sing in the church choir in my community. Um, to me, singing is a form of prayer, and I only sing, you know, church music. Um, and so that is something that really fills me, and I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, did uh, I love yoga? Although I haven't mm -hmm. done so and recently, I haven't gotten uh, to it, but that's something that I want to get back to. Uh, I love to dance. Um, and so those are, you know, some of the things that I do to, to have fun. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's been such a lovely conversation. Any last thoughts for the listeners or viewers of the show? Uh, just that, you know, have goals for yourself, believe in yourself, and know that you can reach out and there will be people that will help you and mentor you and support you along the way. Don't give up. We need more Latino leaders and I will do everything I can to help support that. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you so much for coming to the Highland Park Public Library, a lovely place. Beautiful. Uh, thank you and have a fantastic day. Thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing for education. A pleasure. Say bye-bye here to the show. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparin Martinez. Chulo. And I love that production. Chulo out.